Uh, many of you know that a couple weeks ago we celebrated our 15th anniversary as a church, 15 years uh, from the time that we had planted and started the church. And when I was in that process of being assessed as a possible church planter, one of the things they're trying to do is discern how called you are to it. And so there was a question that a lot of these experienced church planters and church planting network type people would ask. And it was a well-meaning question that I actually came to think was a really idiotic question. Like they meant well, but it's a dumb question. Here was the question they would ask me. They would say this, Luke, would it be a sin for you not to plant a church? Would it be a sin for you to not plant a church? And, and here's the thing, it's well-meaning. What they're trying to do is like, hey, is this just the latest fly-by-night idea you had? Or are you really called? Are you really committed? That's what they're trying to discern. But I just thought, what a weird thing. Like there's only one thing a person could do with their vocation and everything else would be sin. I mean, unless God had like audibly spoken to me, Luke, plant a church. Like that's the only reason if I disobeyed that, that, that I would feel like, yeah, it'd be a sin. And so I went, no, I don't think it'd be a sin for me to not plant a church. I think God's leading me to do it. I think there's an opportunity and I want to give it a try. But I worked in a number of jobs that weren't ministry jobs. They weren't pastoring jobs. I did that before I was in ministry. I could do that again. I think there's lots of different ways that I could honor God in my work. And so, no, I don't think it'd be a sin for me to not plant a church. It wouldn't be a sin for me to stop being a pastor. But that question, it kind of reveals a bit of a, of a dualism that we have as Christians. We tend to think, well, there's, there's ordinary work and then there's sacred work. There's secular work, and then there's spiritual work. And that dualism tends to infect it, where we kind of go, well, you know, people will say to me, well, Luke, I know you have a job that matters, but, you know, I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. And we want to reorient our hearts around that. And we want to develop a better approach and a better understanding and a better uh, appreciation for what God's calling us to do when it comes to work. So that's what we're doing today, is we're looking at Christianity and work. In this series, we're calling Confronting Genesis. What we're doing is we're looking at these earliest chapters of the Bible and how they connect with some of the most important and relevant questions that we ask. So we've looked so far at Christianity and truth, Christianity and science, Christianity and human dignity. Today is Christianity and work. Next week is Christianity and rest. We're going to get into issues of gender and sex and evil and suffering and judgment and purpose and all sorts of stuff. Uh, that's where we're going to go. But today we're talking about Christianity and work. I want to give you a couple of recommended resources. These are some things that I think could help you uh, in this process. Um, there's two articles that we've posted online. I thought about trying to cram them into the sermon today, but um, how many of you know that sermons with stuff crammed in aren't usually great? At least I know that. So I said, well, I'll just put these as articles. So there's two articles. If you go to ironwoodchurch.org slash articles, uh, one of them is eight motivations for work. And the Bible actually gives eight different motivations, eight different possible motives you could have for work. And here's the thing, they're all biblical, but the more of them that you have, the more satisfied and fulfilled and the more meaningful your work is going to feel. So that will be something worth looking at. The second article is, is 25 ways to imitate God in work. We're told in Ephesians 5.1 to be imitators of God. And maybe one of the ways we don't think about that we glorify God is actually by imitating God, by doing the kinds of things he does. And so this is a list of 25 different things that imitate God in our work. Now, my wife is a stay-at-home mom, and uh, I gave this to her the other day. I said, hey, you know, babe, I'm looking at this list, and I actually think you do all 25 of these in the work you do. 
And so if you want to try to figure out some motivations and some things that help you go, okay, my work matters to the Lord, I think those two resources would be very helpful. So I recommend those. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, and specifically the words there that have to do with work. And then we're going to try to look at some dangers and some temptations as it relates to work that we as followers of Christ want to try to avoid. So so that's where we're going, all right? So you're in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates man and woman in his image to represent him. There's a lot involved with that. But then you get to Genesis uh, 1.28, and what's really cool about Genesis 1.28 is God goes from speaking uh, in general about other stuff to actually speaking to the people. Before this, it's let there be light, let there be stars, let there be creeping things. Now it's, he's speaking to them, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the first time that God is speaking to his people and he tells them, be fruitful, multiply and work hard. Get married, have a family, get a job. Pretty interesting. It's not even really get a job, it's just you already have a job. (laughs) And here's what it is. It's to subdue the earth. That word subdue means to control or to bring into submission. It's the same word that is used when someone would be uh, kneading dough in order to make bread. It's they're subduing the dough. They're they're controlling it. They're bringing it into submission. It's the same word that's used about someone who is treading on grapes in order to make wine. They're subduing the grapes. It's it's harnessing the, the, the creative stuff that God has put within it and bringing it to bear. Subdue. The second thing he says is have dominion over all these animals, over all these things. Well, to have dominion means to exercise authority over or to rule over. So this is what it is to work. It's to bring certain things under control. It's to have some level of authority, some level of dominion, some level of rule. And then if you go to Genesis 2, we see more of what God has in mind when it comes to work. Turn to Genesis 2 or swipe over to Genesis 2.15. And it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work it, Adam. Work it, Adam. I think that'd be, maybe that's how God, God was like, man, Adam, you work it. Uh, Anyway, to work means to exert oneself, to toil, to serve, right? It's just saying like, hey, put in the elbow grease, man. Like work hard, get after it, go. And it says he was also then to keep it. This word to keep means to preserve or to maintain, to take care of. He's saying, I have put all sorts of goodness in this earth, and I want you to work it and cultivate it and protect it so that even more goodness emerges from it. I don't know uh, how you like your English muffin. We've had English muffins lately in our house. It feels like kind of a special treat. They've got all the little nooks for the butter. Hallelujah and amen, right? But if you want to take an English muffin to the next level, right, you toast it up, you fill it up with little lakes of butter, and then you get some preserves. 
See, see, I, I don't like jelly. Jelly is like some fruit juice with some gelatin. No thanks. Next up on the, you know, food chain of gelatinous fruit <laughs> spreads, you got jelly, and then you got jam. Jam's a little better because there's like little like pieces, remnants of the fruit, but preserves. Ooh la la. Preserves. It's got the whole thing. It's got all the goodness. You're going to have to chew it a while. It's like, I love preserves. Right? This is what he's saying. He's saying, work the ground, preserve it. Keep all that goodness in there. I don't want just a little bit of it. I, Adam, I want you to bring out all the flavor that I've put in there. That's what it is to work. By the way, this is interesting, the language of working it and keeping it. That's the same language that the priests were called to do when God gave them the temple. Which means, in a sense, Adam, his job as a human being is to be like a priest of God's presence in this created world. That's who we are as God's people. So if we sum that up, this really leads us to three takeaways, three lessons from Genesis 1 and 2. The first one is that work is part of God's good design for humans. Notice there's no sin yet. Sin doesn't come till chapter 3. A lot of times people act like work is part of the curse. No, no, no. Work is part of creation. We're designed by God to work even when there's no sin. This is why, by the way, you will work in the new heavens and the new earth. Because if you want to know, someone asked once, uh, how would you describe heaven in one word? And I heard an answer I loved. This person said, Eden. How would you describe heaven in one word? Eden. Well, in Eden, you're working. In the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to work. It's part of God's good design for humans. Here's the second lesson from this, is that work is part of our design regardless of whether we're compensated. Notice, God does not say, hey, Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, work it, keep it, and be sure to see me on Friday because I'll have something for you. Right? This is not compensation. There's no, there's no check there's no money, there's no gold, there's no bartering. This is work for work's sake. Get this, this is really, really important. You can be unemployed, but you're never out of work. You cannot have a formal job that pays you, but you're never out of work. This is important. Some of you are your kids, and you like have these household chores, and it's like, man, this is such a drag. How come my parents don't pay me for this? By the way, they pay for everything in your sorry little life. But, I mean, you're wonderful, special, better than anyone in life. That's what I meant. But here's what, here's what I want to tell you. Those chores that you're assigned to do, that's not punishment for mom and dad. That's not the grind because you live in a fallen world. No, no, no. That's part of your design. You're cultivating you're maintaining, you're keeping, and you're wiping windows, and you're vacuuming, and you're sweeping the floor very slowly, and all the things you do, you're, you're actually cultivating work for the glory of God. Same thing for uh, some of you are moms, stay-at-home moms. Right, those of you who have a job outside the home, and you're working to cultivate the home, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's extra. But for those of you who are stay-at-home moms, like my wife has a bachelor, bachelor of science in mathematics. She has S-M-A-R-T, folks. And I remember at one point when we were starting to think about having a family, and she said, you know, I feel like I want to be just a full-time mom. Is that okay? That's a hard thing. That's uncomfortable. It's like, did, was all this education, was all this a waste? 
No, it's not a waste. Because you can be unemployed, but you're never without work. Or those of you who are retired. A friend of mine, he was a pastor who retired. He said, it's amazing how fast you go from being who's who to who's he. But you still have value, and you're still made in the image of God, and your work still matters, and the things you do to cultivate and keep and bless those around you, it's a big deal. Works part of God's good design for humans, works part of our design regardless of whether we're compensated. Number three, work assumes that authority, power, and control are good. Notice these words, subdue, which means to control, have dominion, exercise authority over, work, exert oneself, keep, maintain. These are words of power, authority, and control. We, we live in a world that is anti-authoritarian, that is suspicious of power, that is like the only word we associate with control is control freak. But here's the thing, work is inherently a good thing, and power, authority, and control are inherently a good thing. Now, they can be distorted, they can be twisted, they can be abused, they can be manipulated, but in and of themselves, they're actually a good thing. In his book, Strong and Weak, Andy Crouch argues that actually to thrive as a human being, you need to have some kind of authority in your life, you also need to have some kind of vulnerability in your life. And when he describes authority, he says authority is this, it's the capacity for meaningful action. The capacity for meaningful action. Do you have some authority in your life? There's some actually some gifts that God's put in you. There's some responsibilities God's given you. There's some experiences God's given you. There's some open doors God's given you to do some meaningful action. You have capacity for meaningful action. You have something that God calls you to do, to subdue, to have dominion, to work, to keep. And if you're a teacher, you have authority over a classroom. If you're a nurse, you have authority over a hospital room. If you're a plumber, you have authority over pipes. If you're a pilot, you have authority over airplanes. Engineers, authority over diagrams and systems and electronic boards. Musicians, you have authority over a guitar. See, authority requires that your action is meaningful because you are capable in it, right? Like, I could pick up Stephen's guitar here and, like, play it. But Stephen has authority over it. And here's what I want to tell you. You have areas of life where God, in his grace and through experience and through education and through training and through effort and through lots of scars and through lots of hard work and through lots of failures and through lots of all sorts of stuff, God's given you authority. Step into it. Believe in it. Don't back away from it. There are areas in your life where people do or they could or they should come to you and say, hey, how do you do this? How, did you, how do you navigate that? Give me experience here. And you shouldn't go, well, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just kind of a dummy. No, you have authority in some areas. Get this. You don't have authority in every area. But you have authority in some. And that's given by God for you to use to bring about the flourishing of his creation. So those are what we learned from Genesis 1 and 2. What are the dangers? What are the things we got to watch out for? All right, there's four of them. And each of these dangers has a, like a t- possible temptation. The first one is this. is uh, One danger to avoid is work as optional. Seeing work as optional. Don't do that. Work is not optional. We've already said it. You're created by God. This is part of the thing. And the temptation is to actually become lazy. 
To view work as like, well, I'll do it if I have to, but I, I don't really have to, so it's just work as optional. I was talking with one a friend who's trying to launch his uh, kids, and uh, one of them, we were talking about how one of them just has a very comfortable relationship with unemployment. <laughs> and uh, that's a frustrating thing when they view it as optional. No, 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 it's not optional. Get going, get moving, get to work. The second danger to avoid is work as bummer. And the temptation here is just constant complaining. Now listen, friends, everybody has days when it's a bummer. Everybody has, like, there's a lot of Monday afternoons for me where I wish I could get a job at Home Depot, but I'm not qualified to work there either. Like you just, we have down days, we have days where, oh man, this is a bad season and this is really difficult or boy, I don't like that. So listen, work sometimes is a bummer, but if you develop a mentality that says my work is always a bummer, what you're doing is you're developing a, an attitude of ingratitude. Because God's providing your needs through it, he's blessing your family, he's giving you the opportunity to have meaningful contribution to this world. He's allowing you to make money that you can steward well to have good gifts and also to be able to give to important things that further his mission. He's giving you an opportunity to imitate him and what you do in a way that gives him glory. He's giving you a lot in this gift. And for you to go, no, it's a bummer. That's like if your kids sit down at dinner and go, mom, I don't like this dinner you made. Which I may or may not have heard out of a child's mouth in the last three weeks. How'd that go? Little boy. <laughs> not great, not great. You don't, hey, hey, look at me. You don't talk to your mother like that. Actually, what I say is you don't talk to my wife like that. Right? God's, God's going, I'm giving you this. Listen, if you're, if you're trusting God to, because your job's a bummer, I get it. Some jobs, they're just tough, right? And it's like, I don't like this. This isn't fulfilling. I don't enjoy a thing about it. The people are difficult, on and on, right? And so you're praying for God to give you another opportunity. Well, while you're praying for God to give you another opportunity, also pray for him to give you gratitude and joy in the midst of this one. The grass is greener where you water it. Give him thanks. Give him praise. Experience his strength. So there's work as optional, there's work as bummer. Here's the third danger to avoid is work as dictator. This is a temptation of capitulation where work just dominates everything, work gets the final say, work is the final authority, work is the final priority, work as dictator. This is where we start saying, well, I have to, you know, I, you know, man, I just don't, it's, it's okay. I mean, I, there's, I don't really have a choice. It's just, I have to, I have to work 75 hours a week. You know, it's just the job. I just have to, I have to travel and be away from my young kids all the time. I have to, I, I have to follow these standard operating shady practices. I have to, I, I have to move to a new city where I have no family and no connection and no church. I just have to. It's my job. I have to. I have to keep my faith private. I can't talk about Jesus. I, ha I have to keep that private. Really? At that point, work is becoming a dictator. 
Listen, there's only one person who you have to obey. The Lord God. Not yourself, not even your conscience. The Lord God. You have to obey him. Everything else that we, that we choose to obey is our choice to obey it. So here's what I just want to lovingly invite you to consider. You may think you have to. It's not that you have to. It's that you're choosing to. And get this. I'm not telling you it's an easy choice, but I am telling you it is your choice. It is your choice to be in a job that makes you feel like a slave, that makes you neglect your family, that makes you get grouchy, that makes you keep your faith private. That's your choice. And so I want to encourage you to make a different choice. Now, here's what it's going to take, is it's going to take some wisdom, and in some cases, it might even take some concessions. It might take some, well, I'm going to have to give a little here in order to have, like, like you're probably in most, I mean, we're in a, a largely secular world, you're, you're not going to be able to, like, have everything you'd want, probably, in most jobs. Uh, uh, so you've got to figure out, okay, what can I, what can I navigate? Well, I want to give you some examples. Here's some biblical examples, some biblical illustrations of people that had to do this. And by the way, these are folks that actually literally worked for dictators. So I know your boss is kind of a jerk, but like Nebuchadnezzar was worse, okay? <laughs> All right, so the first one uh, is Joseph. We're going to see Joseph here later this year when we studied uh, the end of the book of Genesis. And Joseph uh, was in uh, slavery and in prison in Egypt, but God had given them this special ability to interpret dreams. And when Pharaoh had a dream, he ends up getting the opportunity to interpret it for him, and he ends up being the number two guy in Egypt, right? He's the vice president, he's the prime minister, he's the, you know, senior VP, whatever you want to call it, he's the number two dude. He's literally working for a dictator. And get this, he's literally working for a pagan dictator, a polytheistic, no regard for the Lord God, Yahweh dictator. What do you do in that situation? Well, here's what's really interesting. There's some areas where he kind of has some concessions, but there's some other areas where he just won't bend and he won't compromise. So just by way of example, I'm not saying this is prescriptive, but this is a description of someone navigating this. And you should look at this and go, maybe there's some wisdom here to consider. So in Joseph's case, he makes some concessions. Pharaoh changes his name to some Egyptian pagan name. He goes along with it. Additionally, Pharaoh gives him a wife who's the daughter of a priest of a false god. Now, later on in the scriptures, the Jews are going to be told, don't intermarry with people from other nations because they're going to lead you astray after their false gods. Well, that command hasn't been revealed yet. But either way, Joseph goes along and he marries this, you know, father and his father-in-law is the priest of a false god. But despite those concessions, he still holds firm. It says three times in the Genesis narrative there that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The reason he's able to thrive, the reason he's able to flourish is because the Lord was with him. That means he had stayed dialed into God. He kept faithful to pray. He kept faithful to listen to God's voice. He kept faithful to try to do what God wanted him to do. The Lord is with him. The second thing you see is that he gives God verbal credit for his gifts and abilities. Right? When he's brought before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's like, hey, uh, it seems like you have this ability to interpret dreams. Um, he's not like, well, actually, yeah, I took strengths finders and, and dream interpretation showed up on that. And it's just kind of my personality. No, he doesn't do that. He goes, hey, uh, you got to know this is not from me. This is from God. 
He gives God glory. He gives God credit. The third thing he does, and I just think this is a subtle but really interesting thing, right? He's received this new Egyptian name. He's married to this Egyptian priest's daughter. But then when he has the opportunity to name his children, what does he do? He gives them Hebrew names. And he gives them Hebrew names that point to the faithfulness of God. His son Manasseh's name means God has made me forget all my hardship. His son Ephraim's name means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So listen, there's some concessions. There's a little give, there's a little take, but, but the heart is unyielding that he is going to publicly live as a follower of the one true God. Can you do the same? Or another example, the person who worked for Nebuchadnezzar was Daniel. Daniel was one of a number of young leaders who'd been taken out of Jerusalem into Babylon. Babylon's as godless empire as ever. And Daniel also becomes an important official and also interestingly through dream interpretation. Maybe start praying for that gift if you need a new job opportunity. <laughs> but Daniel, interesting, when you read, when you read Daniel 1, Right, he's firm. He, you know, we're not going to eat the king's food. But you know what he does go along with? He lets his name be changed to a pagan name. He also allows himself to be indoctrinated and educated. He gets all A's on the Babylonian witchcraft and astrology tests. He somehow goes along with that. But then he says, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food. He also, when given a command, hey, don't pray to anyone except this statue, he says, Sayonara, I'm opening the, the windows and letting everybody see me pray to the one true God. And that's what lands him in the lion's den. It's just so interesting to me. There's a little bit of concession. He's not going to get everything he wants. But he's not going to pretend he's not absolutely committed to God. The only I have to is coming from God most high. Is that the case for you? If not, this is an opportunity to reconsider and to repent and to turn and say, God, would you reorient my heart on this so that I could serve you, so that all of life would be all for Jesus. All right, here's the last danger to avoid. Number four is work as identity. The temptation here is idolatry. Work as identity. Identity is a powerful thing, right? When you're, it's one thing to just do something. It's another thing to have your identity wrapped up in what you do. I realized this at some point um, in my early 20s. I would go uh, play pickup basketball with some friends, and uh, no one's ever looked at me and thought, he'd be a great basketball player. Uh, and you're right, uh, I'm not. Um, but I would go to the gym, and I'd play, and it was fun, and do pickup ball. And I'm competitive, and so, you know, I'd play hard, and I'd be disappointed if I didn't play well. But, but you know, like five minutes after it was over, it was over. I didn't care. And I remember one time driving home from a pickup basketball game going, this is so interesting. Like, when I come play pickup basketball, it doesn't really matter to me. But when I was a college baseball player, every at bat, it was like my whole everything was on the line. Why? Well, because at that season of my life, baseball, in a sense, was my identity. It wasn't just a game I was playing. It wasn't just an opportunity I had to have teammates and to compete, it was like, like too much was at stake. You get it? What about you with your work? Is your work become your identity? It's who you are. 
It's the most important thing about you. It's the most central thing to your story. It's the thing that's most dictating your attitude and behavior. Has it become your identity? Has it become idolatrous? I want to tell you today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not your work. You're not your career. You're not your job title. You're not your income. You're not your kids. You, if you're a follower of Christ, that becomes your identity. Otherwise, you'll just, you'll, you'll ride all the waves of identity. Tim Keller said it this way. If you make work your identity and you succeed, it'll go to your head. If you fail, it'll go to your heart. Some of you, you you've lived there. When it was all up and to the right, boy, you sure thought you were something and it was going to your head. And then when it was down into the right and it all crashed, you went, who am I? I don't know who I am anymore. And the failure went to your heart. That's not your identity. My identity, friends, is not lead pastor Ironwood Church. By the way, I don't know if you know this. I think about it frequently. I'm the interim lead pastor of this church. And I'm not, I don't know when my time will end. I don't have an announcement to make today. Sorry. (laughs) But here's what I know. I'll have a last day as the lead pastor of this church. But you know what I'll never have a last day of? being a child of the Father, being the bride of the Son, being the home of the Holy Spirit. That's my identity. That's who I am. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's who you are. You're a child of the Father. You're the bride of the Son. You're the home of the Holy Spirit. You are not your job. You're not your career. That's all interim. That's all temporary. Now, do it well. Do it for the glory of God, because what will last are the things you do for the honor and glory of God. Be motivated to serve him. Be motivated to cultivate his earth and to make things better and to love people through it and to imitate him in the way you do your work. That'll last. I'm not saying your work is meaningless. I'm just saying it's not everything. Because if Jesus Christ came and he gave his life for you and he was buried for you and he rose for you and he's coming back for you, then he's your identity. He's what matters. He's what will last. Live for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to work, to honor you in the way that we do it. We pray, God, that we would imitate your character and find our hope in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.